A headline from Gallup this summer was, record high 50% of Americans rate U.S. Morals, moral values as poor. For 20 years, Gallup has been tracking Americans' assessment of ourselves in terms of moral values, and this time around, the meter rose up out of the 40th percentile region, and it hit the 50% mark, which is a record. Another finding of Gallup is that Americans' outlook for the future on this subject is bleak. Only 18% of us say that our morals as a nation will get better, while a supermajority, 78% of us, see morals getting worse as far as the eye can see. And in that context, the Church of Jesus Christ, meaning people, believers, we have the divine calling to be the reverse trend in all of this. The IVP Bible background book, the New Testament volume, Craig Keener says this, ancient culture was pervasively religious, but most pagan religious practices were ritual observances that did not cast moral influence over one's daily life and ethics. In other words, the ancients were religious, but the religion was detached from personal morality. And into that context came the apostles' ministries and writings, and they delivered theology, yes, but equally practical morals as well. Often their letters open up with a theological section, then there's a pivot, and then the latter section is full of action items and practical application. And in our Rooted series in Colossians, we're well into this application section of the epistle. The book of Colossians opens with a lot of theology in chapters one and two, and it's theology of the supremacy of Christ and what he did through his death, his resurrection, his ascension is applied to the believer. And then in chapter three, we encounter the big pivot to the practical application section. And it says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And we'll recall this morning how Pastor Rusty challenged us to be so heavenly minded that we are of earthly good. And I want to submit that in the ancient world, just as you had religion and spirituality detached from personal morals, it's the same situation today. And so the apostolic writings are just as relevant to us as they were then. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be starting at verse 12. Last week, Pastor Rusty took us through verses 5 through 11, where Scripture tells us that things, the practices and attitudes that we should rid ourselves of if Christ is real in our lives. And uh, this week, it's about putting on something, putting on the virtues because we've put off the vices. It's also about our life together as believers and the importance of musical worship. There's a lot here. It reminded me of a can of, you ever buy those cans of orange juice concentrate and then you have to add all the, you know, two more cans to make your orange juice. That's how this paragraph feels to me. It's just concentrated. And it's been a, actually a difficult text for me to work through because there's so much here and it just needs more water and more water and more water. But hopefully the orange juice is made this morning and we can serve it upright, uh, the spirit enabling me. So uh, let's read together then this concentrate, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, 
forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The first thing we see in this text, friends, is that those who accept the Lord Jesus Christ accept a new wardrobe, right? There are six garments that believers are instructed to put on in this passage. Not literal garments, of course, but figurative garments. The spiritual clothing that God has knitted and created for us as his new covenant people, and there's an imperative in the text that says, put these things on, Colossians. And there's an initial list of five virtues then we have some intervening material, and then a sixth garment tops off the section. So let's take a look at this wardrobe. The first garment is literally bowels, entrails. Put on bowels, what's he talking about? Well, often in the ancient world, the inner body parts and the viscera were considered the seat of the emotions, and today, uh, in our language today, we would say hearts to mean the same thing. So he's telling us to put on hearts, and there's a modifier to this word that means displaying concern over another's misfortune. So hearts that display concerns for another person's misfortune, those are compassionate hearts, and that's exactly what the ESV has here. The second garment in the list comes from a Greek word that means fishing shirt. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, if today is your first time, please know that Pastor Rusty is fond of fishing sh shirts. He's donning one today, and he's known to make some humorous uh, mention of it from time to time. So I'm just trying to keep the tradition alive here this morning. Uh, but in truth, the second garment is the garment of kindness, and it comes from a word that means the quality of being helpful or beneficial. Okay, it's not just an attitude of, I'm not hostile, I'm kind. No, it's an attitude of, I want to be beneficial to you. I want to be a blessing to you. And this is the same word that is listed fifth among the different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Abraham Joshua Heschel is a Polish-born American rabbi, and he confessed, when I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I am old, I admire kind people. I would say that's growing in wisdom. The third virtue that we're to put on as believers is humility. And in the original, it's actually a compound word. It comes from tapenos, which means low, and frain, which means mind. Literally, put on a low mind, okay? But please hear me today. Lowness of mind does not mean a feeble mind. Uh, unfortunately, uh, some Christian groups would, would see kind of a calling that we have to not be intellectually rigorous and that somehow that's devout. But that's far from the truth. The, the, the point here is that it's arrogance that's being prohibited, not being of a sharp mind or applying our mind, loving God with all our minds. 
What is arrogance? Merriam-Webster says it's an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous assumptions. You know, we might think we have a humble attitude this morning, but if we look in the mirror and we see that we have a manner that's just overbearing, or we're constantly taking liberties and assuming things presumptuously about people, about situations, then, friends, we have a humility problem. Let's just call it for what it is. It's a subtle form of arrogance to just constantly be pressing your agenda, right? Um, and, and as believers, we're called to something different. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, we, we learned from that that Jesus was humble in heart. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the idea here is that Jesus didn't go around laying heavy burdens on people. Isn't it easy to be around humble people? It's so easy. And the word of God asks us today, am I easy to be around? Are you easy to be around? And say ouch if you can't say amen, right? Page from Mike Satterfield. Um, we need to be, as believers, people who are easy to be around in the sense that we have a humble attitude and we're not heaping burdens upon those around us. In this wardrobe, the fourth piece of those who accept Christ is gentleness. Gentleness is an attitude of, of, and behavior. It's in contrast with harshness in one's dealings with others. And the ESV here has a meekness uh, really, I would say, a less than effective translation. Why do I say that? Because in current usage, meekness means weakness. That's how Americans speak. Um, in an article for the journal Inner Resources for Leaders, Mark E. Kaner writes, modern-day definitions of meekness hold an immensely different meaning from the spiritual connotation that is referenced in the Bible. This is not a call for weakness. This is not a call to retreat. It's a call to handle people with a sense of respect, right? Be ready to give an answer in this with gentleness and respect. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, the fifth piece of our wardrobe here is patience. Um, the word is also listed uh, in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. If you have a King James Version, it says long-suffering, which reflects the fact that in the original, it's a compound word. It starts with macro, long-suffering. Uh, it's funny, but an accurate translation that fits casual conversation today could be, have a long fuse. All right? Question, are you known for having a short fuse? The Apostle Paul, if he were here, he might say, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new fuse. The short has passed away. Behold, the long fuse has come. Right? That's what this text is saying. And I was pretty proud of my fuse, honestly, until I came into some rough waters of parenting. A creature half my size, possessing half my genetics, gets on a backtalk path, and I can go from Pastor Com to the Incredible Hulk in 60 seconds, right? And how about you? What makes you go from Com to Incredible Hulk in 60 seconds? Take that to the Lord. Say, God, help me. Help me to be long-fused with that situation. You know, the 12 disciples, they were sometimes selfish, slow to believe, they at times rebuked the wrong people. 
They were stubborn, but Jesus was patient with them. So let's be that way to others. Let's be like we say on the sign back here, reach, teach, live, love, like Jesus. Let's be that type of person. The sixth garment down in verse 14 is love. And it says, above all these, put on love. It's kind of like the final coat, you know, the suit coat for the guy. Um, maybe a, a, a nice adorning kind of uh, short coat for a gal that's in an evening gown. It's that thing that just tops off the whole ensemble, if you will. And if you know the term agape, that's the word here. There's different forms of love. And C.S. Lewis, you know, famously wrote in 1960 that book, The Four Loves. And he explores different Greek words for love, from storge, which is a word for the affection between a parent and a child, to other loves, like friendship love or erotic love. And while there are definitely biblical times when agape is used to refer to these lower, baser loves, mainly the distinction of the biblical passages and of the early churches, they, they, they gave agape like a new flavoring. It became the choice word for when one is talking about God's type of love. It's God's love. It's the highest form of love because it seeks the welfare of others. It's a supernatural type of love. Well, let's move now to our second major point this morning, and it's, it's this. Those who accept the Lord Jesus not only accept a new wardrobe, we accept a new community. See, sandwiched between the fifth and sixth garments, there's two verb phrases that I skipped over just for convenience. But the first one that we see in verse 13 is bearing with one another. Can we just appreciate this morning how realistic the Bible is? Why would this be here if Christian community was easy peasy? Having Christ in common does not mean that Christian community is easy. Having Christ as our common bond does not mean that church is a breeze. Do we want a biblical definition of church? Let's try this one from Colossians 3.13. A church is a group of believers putting up with each other. What a calling. And that doesn't sound too stately or doctrinal, does it? So in Christian doctrine, this virtue, this ethic is sometimes called forbearance. Oh, that sounds doctrinal. Andrea Tom, writing for the Gospel Coalition of Canada, has helped me this week to have a better framework than I had before reading her, and maybe it'll be helpful to you as well. She writes, Forbearance overlooks an unpleasant characteristic event or offense that is relatively minor, even if our emotions feel major. It's the annoying habit in our colleague the friend who didn't wave at church, the joke at our expense last week. By contrast, forgiveness applies to major offenses that require discussion in order for a resolution to occur. See the difference? Forbearance versus forgiveness. So forbearance applying to those lighter things and forgiveness for more in-depth offenses. So this week I got a project for everyone in the room. I want you to locate that believer in your life who did something terribly annoying and rude and message them on Facebook or something and say, congratulations, you're my forbearance pick of the week. <laughs> All right? It's like, it's like, thumbs up, man. We don't need to talk forgiveness. You're just a forbearance pick. We're good. When something goes beyond the forbearance meter, 
into the Christian's life, that doesn't erase the call to apply agape. And Scripture's call is then to move into that weightier realm of forgiveness. And we see in verse 13, it continues, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And please understand that the vocabulary here of complaint is not meant to suggest that it has to be something small, like, you know, I'm filling out a complaint card at the fast food joint. You know, this term can include offenses that are just outright, flagrant, clear-cut sin. And I love what Frank Minnerth, Paul Meyer, and Stephen Arterburn write. Forgiving is unnatural. When someone strikes us, our instant reflexive response is to strike back. God does not want us to respond to life and its challenges in a natural way. He wants us to respond in a supernatural way. Forgiving is love's toughest work. Wow. In the New Testament, there are at least four verbs for forgiveness. And the one that's used here places stress on grace being involved. It means to forgive on the basis of one's gracious attitude toward an individual. The word grace is actually built into the verb. And what is grace? Grace is unmerited, unearned favor. Grace is the marvel of Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. Forgiveness has a cost. Our forgiveness costs Jesus his earthly life. When we forgive another human being, it too has a personal cost to us. Let me be clear. The call on the Christian to forgive is not a call to be a doormat, to deny the sinfulness of sin, or to reinforce some pathological thing. Forgiveness involves, at the very least, the disciplines of psychology and theology and jurisprudence or law. It's a complicated concept. And unfortunately, a lot of popular Christian discussion of forgiveness is distorted. It's overly simplistic, even psychologically detrimental. Uh, Hear me on this. Jeffrey Bransma is a Christian psychologist and professor at the Medical College of Georgia. And he says it takes discernment to guide someone on the path of forgiveness. The process, the timing, the person's understanding of what that means, all of that matters a great deal. And so, for example, so let's say someone of a certain personality uh, or history is just overly quick to forgive, right? They've never truly gotten in touch with their anger about the offense. They're not even grasping the scope of it. And they just kind of like, I'm a Christian, it's my duty, I go straight. And the good doctor says, in such a scenario, the better part of wisdom, you're not helping that person anybody, just let's make it happen. No, the better part of wisdom is to help slow that person down. Teach differences between forgiveness and fellowship help someone to establish appropriate boundaries, and so forth. And Andrea Tom, 
It is worth, so worth quoting again. She says, Forgiveness does not mean forgetting or excusing egregious acts. It does not insist that the relationship return to its previous form. It does not remove any legal consequences that may apply. However, forgiveness does cost us deeply because through it, we lay down our right to have our offender owe us. That's powerful. In uh, my life, I was thinking about this with my wife this week, I think, you know, there's, I probably need to use a full hand to count the instances in my life where there was a major grievance and it was very difficult and I just want to have you this morning think in your life, is there something that you went through in the past or maybe something that you're going through right now and deep down you would say, that person owes me. That person sinned and it has just got me, you know? If that's you this morning, I just want to challenge you to soak yourself in the word of God. Uh, He can bring about that supernatural work of forgiveness. We can't drum it up ourselves. We got to be honest with what's inside and what we're feeling. But that's okay because God, he leads his people, right? We're the new chosen people. We're chosen, we're loved, and he'll produce that work in us as we submit to him and take our issues to his altar. In World War II, Christian woman, Corey Ten Boom, worked against the Nazis, hid Jews in her home in the Netherlands, and the Nazis discovered this and sent her whole family to a prison. Eventually, her and her father and her sister were in concentration camps, and they suffered there unimaginably. Corey saw her dad and her sister Betsy die in the concentration camp, and 12 days after her sister died, Corey was released on what she would later learn was a clerical heir. And this was at the very tail end of 1944. And Corey went on to become a world speaker and an author about her sufferings and about her experiences and the power of Christ and all that. You know, it's just amazing. She lived, uh, I think, to be in her 90s and went to some 60 countries. But anyway, so she gets released at the tail end of 1944. In 1946, bold woman, she returned to Germany And she had an encounter there in a church with a man who had been employed at the very concentration camp where she and her sister and her dad were. And I want to share her story in her words. She says this. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away and his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And she writes, and I who preach so often to the people 
in Bloemendal, that's her home district back in the Netherlands, so often I told the people there the need to forgive, I said I kept my hand at my side. She wouldn't respond. And even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened, she writes. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on his. Wow. Let's move on in our text. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You know, verse 16 has a ton about musical worship and in a sermon that I gave a couple years ago in our basics series, I dealt extensively with the categories here of the, the, the psalms, the hymns and spiritual songs and implications of that for how we do worship team and all of this. And uh, this morning, I'm not going to rehash all of that, but what I want to do is, is just point out a, a couple things. You might notice that in several Bible translations, like the one that I'm reading from, the ESV, that the relationship between the ING words, teaching, admonishing, singing, they may leave a reader without a clue that the Greek may be suggesting a specific relationship between these actions. What am I talking about? Several of the most respected translators, uh, whether today or in history, of this passage view the clause about singing the psalms, etc., as showing the agency through which the other two verbs are accomplished. Okay, that's a mouthful. Boiling it down, here's how that would work out in translation. Let the word of Christ dwell among you, teaching and admonishing one another by means of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing to God. Did you catch that? In other words, as we sing this material, we are teaching, we are admonishing, we are letting the gospel of Jesus Christ live plenteously or richly within us. Did you know that before I stood up to start speaking, that you all had already preached to one another? From a biblical perspective, during our praise singing time, we were doing teaching, right? As we sang all these lyrics, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. What can wash away our sin? You know, we even gave questions to one another, and then we answered them, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, the third major point today is those who accept the Lord Jesus not only have a new wardrobe, not only accept a new community, but we also accept a new song. When Jesus and his gospel dwell in us richly, we cannot help but sing out in thankfulness to God. 
Colossians doesn't directly state why Christians sing, but the text implies it throughout. It tells us we're holy, the doctrine of justification in verse 12, that we're loved of God. It says that peace can rule in our hearts. It tells us that we're not alone. We're members of of one body. It tells us that we have the lyrics of 150 scriptural songs, the book of Psalms that can get us started on pouring out our hearts to God. And of course, in chapter 2, it tells us we have a new nature because if we died and rose with Christ and we received him, that's transformative. It's epic. Amy, my wife, is a bird lady. Okay, she's not a crazy cat lady. She's a crazy bird lady. Okay, and I have her permission to share that with you all this morning. Okay, if you come to our, our house, you will find in every single room that there's a, a piece of decor or artwork that's a bird. Now, by profession, she's a counselor. Now, one day in her office in Colorado, as she was preparing to see clients for that day and all their difficult situations, she heard outside the window this wonderful extended singing of a bird. You know, the world has so many deep problems, but there are God's birds singing away, vocalizing to their heart's content. Why do birds do that? They do it in the morning. You know, sometimes I can't sleep in because the birds are at it, right? It's because it's their nature. And I want to suggest, friends, that on the basis of this passage, it's in the believer's nature to sing. And some of you may scoff at that and say, oh, my voice is bad, I'm not musical, you don't want to hear me sing. Um, you know, and if that's you, okay, no condemnation. I'm not, I'm not doing that. My point is that when people die and rise with Christ, they receive a new nature. That new nature comes with a new song. The song is a song of thankfulness to God for the gospel, which is good news. Whether we have an aptitude for music or not, did you know a new song is in your heart? You're among God's birds, like it or not, right? And if we take our eyes off Jesus, the bad news around us, becomes overwhelming and perhaps it even silences us we we feel that sense of uh, the chords that are broken um, meaning the vocal chords that are broken it's an old fanny crosby lyric right the the chords that are broken will vibrate once more in this revival song she has anyway i just want to challenge us this morning that that the holy spirit as the spirit empowers us and we keep our eyes on Jesus, that song will come out, that song will endure, that song will happen in community. It's an unstoppable song. Yale University's Dr. Pelican put it well. He says, there's never been a time since Jesus and his disciples sang the Passover hymn in the upper room on the night of his betrayal that music and verse did not figure prominently in Christian life and worship. Amen? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, I just want to bless this congregation and pray, Father, that you would empower them to put on the wardrobe you provided to exist in a harmonious Christian community, to forgive when forgiveness is needed, and to allow 
ourselves to be in touch with your song and to sing that out. Help us not to be downcast and look at all the reasons for why we could be. Help us to look up. Help us to set our minds on things above, knowing that you are sovereign and that you are Lord. You are supreme.